Hello, and welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Connor. Thank you, as always, for listening. In the last episode of our series on the Haitian Revolution, we watched as a new kind of war came to the French colony of Saint-Domingue, an imperial war. In September 1792, the French overthrew King Louis XVI and declared the foundation of the French Republic. The monarchies of Europe reacted to this by forming a military coalition against France, in hopes of forcing them to restore the king to his rightful place. Among the belligerents in what is known to history as the War of the First Coalition were the Kingdom of Great Britain and the Kingdom of Spain, the other two principal geopolitical forces in the Caribbean Sea. Both monarchies saw an opportunity to wrest Saint-Domingue away from France. Even though the colony had been devastated by an entire year of civil war and slave revolt, they still saw Saint-Domingue as the most lucrative colony in the world. The Spanish were the first to strike, but they didn't immediately send their armies over the border from Spanish Santo Domingo. Instead, they reached out to the ex-slave insurgent armies who had come to dominate much of Saint-Domingue's northern province, and with whom they had already cultivated ties from the earliest days of the slave revolt. The Spanish gave them an offer. If they were to fight on behalf of the Spanish crown against the French, the Spanish would allow them to keep their freedom. Most of the insurgent generals, including the two most prominent ones, Jean-Francois Papillon and Georges Biassou, took the Spanish up on their offer and swore undying allegiance to the King of Spain. They adopted a decidedly royalist rhetoric, styling themselves as soldiers of the king and swearing death upon the perfidious republicans. Meanwhile, in Saint-Domingue's southern and western provinces, Britain made its move. 900 British soldiers landed at the town of Jeremy in September 1793, but instead of facing resistance from the locals, they were welcomed with cries of long live the English. In fact, the big white colonists of Saint-Domingue, that is to say the plantation-owning class of wealthy white men, had invited the British to take over the colony. They saw France as no longer being capable or willing to protect the institution of slavery, which undergirded their entire economic system and way of life. The British, they reasoned, were still committed to maintaining slavery. And so, with the help of French collaborators, the British were able to quickly occupy much of the southern and western provinces of Saint-Domingue. Somewhere in this whole equation were the free people of color, a fairly prosperous class of individuals of mixed-race heritage. Having long been oppressed by the big whites, who made every effort to deny them their civil and political rights, the free people of color saw in the revolution an opportunity to win these rights for themselves by force of arms, if necessary. Under their leader, André Rigaud, the free people of color organized themselves into military units and fought with the whites in the western province of the colony. It was not long, however, before the slave revolt in the north scared both the big whites and the free people of color into putting aside their differences and banding together as property owners with a shared interest in maintaining the institution of slavery. Meanwhile, in France, the status of the free people of color had been the topic of heated debate in the National Convention, the legislative body of the French Republic. Opposing the enfranchisement of the free people of color were the moneyed interests of the Masayak Club, who sought to prevent any and all discussion of the colonial question whatsoever. Advocating for the rights of the free people of color were the men of the Society of the Friends of the Blacks, a relatively small and elite but nevertheless influential political club. Sympathetic to their cause were the Jacobins, whose power had been on the rise since 1792. 
able to frame the enfranchisement of the free people of color as a necessary step to maintaining order in the colony. The Society of the Friends of the Blacks and their Jacobin allies successfully argued for full civil and political rights to anyone who met a certain property requirement, regardless of racial heritage. To enforce this decree, the National Convention dispatched two commissioners to Saint-Domingue, Laguerre Felicité Santanax and Etienne Polverel. Technically, they did send three, but a third commissioner, a man named Ilode, abandoned his comrades at his first opportunity. Upon arriving in the ravaged, war-torn colony, the commissioners knew that they would have to take very drastic measures if they were to save Saint-Domingue for France. During a conflict with the colonial governor, Santanax, both cornered and outnumbered, took a page from the Spanish playbook and offered freedom to anyone who fought on behalf of the Republican cause. Answering this call to arms, a band of rebels from the nearby countryside fought against and defeated Santanax's counter-revolutionary opponents, driving them into the sea and forcing many to depart Saint-Domingue forever. Seeing the success of this strategy, Santanax now believed that this was something that he could replicate on a much wider scale. The Republic needed soldiers to fight on its behalf, and reinforcements from France could not be counted on. With no other option left, on August 29th, 1793, Santanax proclaimed the abolition of slavery in Saint-Domingue, a radical action indeed, the importance of which cannot be overstated. After 300 years, slavery was no more in Saint-Domingue. All of the people of the colony were free men, equal in rights. However, Santanax's abolition of slavery failed to have the immediate effect he hoped it would. Most of the ex-slave insurgents remained firmly in the Spanish camp, with one notable exception a 45-year-old general named Toussaint Louverture. Toussaint initially served under Biassou, but he was beginning to chart a more independent course for himself and his army. He had the inclination to change his allegiance to the Republic, but he felt he could not do so until the National Convention in France had ratified the commissioner's decision. After all, he reasoned, they did not technically have the authority to make such an action. So Toussaint bided his time. Once news of the abolition of slavery in Saint-Domingue reached metropolitan France, the National Convention were presented with a fait accompli. Slavery had already been abolished in France's largest colony. At this point, they reasoned, why not act on their revolutionary convictions and end this insidious institution that ran counter to everything they claimed to believe in? And so it was that on February 3, 1794, the National Convention declared slavery abolished throughout France and all of its holdings. Nearly as soon as Toussaint heard this news, he pledged his allegiance to France. Turning on his erstwhile allies, Toussaint led a brilliant military campaign to retake the northern province for the Republic, putting Biassou and Jean-Francois to flight. The French succeeded in defeating the Spanish in Europe as well. And, on July 22, 1795, the Treaty of Basel was signed, wherein Spain ceded their portion of the island of Hispaniola to France. When the Spanish forces evacuated the island, Jean-Francois, Biassou, and their closest allies went with them. The Spanish repaid them for their faithful service by allowing them to settle elsewhere in their empire. Biassou ended up settling near St. Augustine, Florida, which at this point was still a Spanish colony. He bought a plantation and, ironically enough, owned a number of slaves. He died in a drunken brawl in 1801 at the age of 60 and was buried with full military honors. Jean-Francois, on the other hand, was taken to the Spanish city of Cadiz, where he lived for an indeterminate number of years before he died, sometime in the mid-1810s. 
The Spanish were at last defeated, but the British threat still remained, and wherever the British went, they brought the change of slavery along with them. The fight for freedom in Saint-Domingue was still far from over. Sometime in early to mid-1794, Santanax and Polverel learned that they had been recalled to France to stand trial and face a series of spurious charges leveled at them by the remnants of the Masayak Club. With their departure, the two most powerful men in Saint-Domingue became Etienne Laveau, governor-general of the colony, and Toussaint Louverture. It is fortuitous, then, that the two men had developed such a cordial friendship. Laveau, whose full name was Etienne Manot de Bizefranc de Laveau, was, as his elaborate name implies, the scion of French nobility. As the third son of a small-time lord in central France, he joined the military at age 17 and had a relatively uneventful career until the outbreak of the revolution, after which he eagerly threw himself into revolutionary politics. He arrived with the three commissioners when they arrived from France in 1792. He soon became the highest-ranking military officer in the colony. He earned high praise from Santanax and Polverel for his actions in helping to quell the slave revolt in the north. As I said, Toussaint and Laveau got along quite well. While Laveau directed both civil and military affairs from La Cap, Toussaint was his man on the ground, dutifully informing the governor-general of his every action. In fact, Toussaint's correspondence with Laveau is notable for being rather... flowery. One such letter from March 18, 1796, reads in part, quote, I cannot think of you without shedding tears of emotion. There are, no doubt, pure friendships, but I am not convinced that any surpass the one that I have for you, or that are any more sincere. Yes, General, Toussaint is your son. You are dear to him. Your tomb will be his. He will risk his life to defend you. His arm and his head are always at your disposition. End quote. While some, knowing what we know about Toussaint's skill of manipulation, might be inclined to read his excessive flattery as being insincere, most historians tend to agree that their friendship was indeed genuine, and the lack of conflict between the two attests to this. While Toussaint carried out his superior's orders without protest on the ground, Toussaint basically had uncontested authority on matters both civil and military. He worked to drill his army into a fighting force that could contend with the British redcoats, all the while he began to build up a reputation for himself as a man of the people. Toussaint was rather well-versed in military strategy, even before the outbreak of the revolt, having read Julius Caesar's commentaries on the Gallic War as a young man. Two years of leading troops in the field had given Toussaint valuable military experience. He was the sort of man to lead by example. He shared in the burdens of his soldiers. He was often on the front lines himself, leading the charge. A quote from C.L.R. James's book, The Black Jacobins, quote, his extraordinary abilities, his silence, the sharpness of his tongue when he did speak, kept even his most trusted officers at a distance. They worshipped him, but feared him rather than loved him. End quote. Toussaint's mere presence was enough to simultaneously inspire and intimidate. Laurent Dubois writes that in his presence, no one dared laugh. Undoubtedly, Toussaint's brand of leadership was invaluable during these hard times. Between 1794 and 1796, the Republicans of Saint-Domingue received absolutely no material assistance from metropolitan France. The soldiers often went hungry, having to forage for their subsistence, often eating raw sugarcane from the fields. Toussaint wrote to Laveau frequently, requesting that he send arms and ammunition that he could simply not provide. Knowing the state of Toussaint's army, the British sent spies to infiltrate his camp, 
offering great rewards to the soldiers were they to defect. But such was the effectiveness of Toussaint's leadership that there is no record of any mass defections in his army during this time. Toussaint was able, despite these deprivations, to keep his army in fighting shape during these two difficult years. A French general remarked, quote, It was remarkable to see these Africans, half-naked, carrying nothing but a cartridge belt, a saber, and a rifle, showing exemplary and severe discipline, end quote. Toussaint took charge of civil administration on the ground as well. In this realm of affairs, Toussaint was faced with an unenviable task. He had two contradictory objectives in this regard. On the one hand, Toussaint had a deep and passionate sympathy for the plight of his people. In one proclamation, he addressed them as follows, quote, O oh, you Africans, my brothers, you who have cost me so many fatigues, so much labor, so much worry, you whose liberty is sealed with more than half of your own blood, how long will I have the mortification of seeing my misled children fly the counsels of a father who idolizes them? End quote. The former slaves of Saint-Domingue, having already suffered the indignities of slavery, were now struggling to eke out a free existence in the war-torn colony, and Toussaint wanted to do everything in his power to improve their lot. On the other hand, Toussaint, like the commissioners, recognized the urgent need to restart the colony's economy. Seeing as how the most productive region of Saint-Domingue, the Northern Plain, lay devastated after several years of slave revolt, Toussaint's task was cut out for him. He had to restart the plantation economy. He simply had no other choice. Santanax and Pulverel had already begun the process by immediately mandating that the newly freed slaves were to remain working on the plantations on which they were enslaved, although now they were at least to be paid a wage. Men who wanted out-of-plantation labor had but one legal recourse, to join the military. Women were simply out of luck. Those who resisted these conditions were deemed criminals and made subject to fines, prison time, and other disciplinary measures. This was far from the ideal of freedom that the former slaves had in mind, and many of them balked at this state of affairs. Insurrections in the years following emancipation were all too common. Toussaint took it upon himself to quell these rebellions, not through force of arms, but through his stern and paternal words. In February 1796, some plantation laborers in the town of Port de Paix rose up and massacred a number of the town's white inhabitants. As soon as Toussaint heard of this, he traveled over 140 miles in one night to personally deal with the situation. He gathered the malcontents together and gave them a lecture, telling them that if they wished to preserve their liberty, they had to work hard for their republican cause and prove to the rest of the world that they could be model citizens of France. The would-be rebels were elated at Toussaint's arrival. They hailed him as the father of the blacks, and they vociferously thanked him for all that he had done on their behalf. However, these men did have their grievances, and they wanted them addressed. One man spoke up on behalf of the group, quote, Alas, General, they want to make us slaves again. There is no equality here. They look at us with a bad eye. They persecute us. We are not allowed a large enough share of what we produce. The whites take our chickens and our pigs, and if we protest, we get thrown into prison. End quote. Toussaint acknowledged that their grievances were justified, but, he said, that did not give them the right to engage in armed insurrection. He exhorted them to think of how France would respond if, in return for granting them liberty, they grew lazy and indolent and slaughtered their fellow citizens. He made them swear an oath to redouble their efforts and to be forever loyal to the French Republic, which had granted them their freedom. In this way, Toussaint was able to quell many similar uprisings across Saint-Domingue, and, over time, 
the former slaves began to recognize Toussaint as a man of the people, someone who was sympathetic to their needs and who would do his best to accommodate them. As Toussaint's forces liberated territory from British occupation, he proclaimed to the slaves that he found working on the plantations that they were now free, and, almost in the same breath, he told them that they had 24 hours to report to work at the same plantation the very next day. Toussaint was amazed to find that the western province had largely been untouched by the devastation of the slave revolt. There he found many plantations in pristine conditions, almost as if nothing had changed in the years since 1791. The class of plantation owners presented him with a dilemma, however. Here was a group of people who had collaborated with the enemy and taken arms up against the French Republic. There were no lengths to which they would not go to safeguard their precious property. Official French policy would have been to have these people rounded up and shot as traitors, left to rot in mass graves, similar to what had happened in the other French Caribbean colony of Guadeloupe. But Toussaint recognized that he had need of these people, regardless of their duplicitousness. He needed their expertise, their education, and most importantly, their capital, if he was to realize his goal of restarting the plantation economy. And so Toussaint pursued a very lenient policy towards the Big Whites in areas formerly occupied by the British. Slavery was indeed abolished, that much was non-negotiable. But, so long as they swore an oath of allegiance to the French Republic, Toussaint allowed them to retain all their other, non-human property, and gave them, essentially, similar opportunities, albeit diminished opportunities, for enrichment that they had enjoyed under the old regime. Some of Toussaint's own men were understandably eager for revenge, and were chomping at the bit to enact their vengeance upon these plantation owners, but Toussaint would not tolerate this. These were not the heady early days of the slave revolt. Things were different now. Toussaint knew that the National Convention's decision to abolish slavery was dependent upon the goods flowing back to metropolitan France. Exports of sugar, coffee, indigo, and cotton had dropped to mere fractions of their pre-war levels. To his closest confidants, Toussaint explained his reasoning thusly, quote, The liberty of the blacks can be consolidated only in the prosperity of agriculture, end quote. In fact, Toussaint believed in this dictum himself, so much to the point where he became a property owner, having brought his first piece of property, a small coffee plantation, in 1795. He encouraged all of his other officers to do the same. As Toussaint and Laveau consolidated their power in the north of the country, to the south, André Rigaud was doing the same. We were introduced to Rigaud a couple episodes back, when he led the free people of color to victory against their adversaries during the Battle of Croix de Bouquet. In the time since then, Rigaud had been appointed commander of the Republican forces in southern Saint-Domingue. As such, Rigaud was technically subordinate to Governor General Laveau, but, in practice, with the British cutting him off from the north, Rigaud operated almost completely autonomously from the authority of the Governor General. He began to forge his own state in the South for the free people of color, all the while bravely fighting against the British, whose policy towards those of mixed-race ancestry was one of officially sanctioned discrimination and disenfranchisement. While they were fighting under the same banner, tensions were beginning to arise between the black ex-slaves led by Toussaint and the free people of color led by Rigaud. The formation of an independent power base for the free people of color seems to have given many of them pretensions of securing more and more power for themselves. They saw Toussaint's growing power and close ties with Laveau and the colonial administration, and it gave them pause. Many of the free people of color remained biased against the men that they literally used to own. They believed that they were inherently incapable of running the colony, 
and they saw themselves as far better suited to the task. The first flashpoint of conflict between the ex-slaves and the free people of color occurred in late 1795. Margot was attempting to assert his authority over bands of insurgents in the area under his jurisdiction. One of these bands was a group of 3,000 insurgents led by a man named Dudon. Dudon and his men were content fighting for the Republican cause, but they refused to submit themselves to the authority of Rigaud and the free people of color. They valued their independence, and they did not want to share the fate of the Swiss, those Maroons who had joined up with the free people of color back in 1792 and fought alongside them, only to be sold out by them once they had achieved their goals. By late 1795, Dudon had had enough of what he perceived as mistreatment of the blacks at the hands of the free people of color. He entered into negotiations with the British, who were more than happy to welcome him into their camp. At this point, Toussaint, whose territory bordered that of Dudon's, stepped in to defuse the situation. He dictated a missive to this insubordinate general, hoping to win him back to the Republican cause. Quote, I cannot believe the painful rumors that are spread about you, that you have abandoned your country to ally yourself with the English, sworn enemies of our liberty and equality. For the time the Spaniards had blinded my eyes, but I did not take long to recognize their rascality. I abandoned them and have beaten them well. I have returned to my country, which received me with open arms and has recompensed my service as well. I beg of you, dear brother, to follow my example. End quote. Toussaint dispatched this letter with two emissaries, who were instructed to read the letter aloud in front of Dudon and his men. Toussaint gave them further instructions that if his words were not able to sway Dudon, they were to incite an uprising of his own men against them. Just as anticipated, Dudon was not swayed, but his men were incensed at him, hurling invectives at him and berating him to rejoin the Republican cause. Taking advantage of this, one of his lieutenants, a man named La Plume, arrested Dudon, took command of the men, and led them across the lines to join Toussaint's army. This was a great victory for Toussaint, to be sure, but at roughly the same time, Tensions were rising in the northern province between himself and a fellow Republican officer, a free man of color named Jean Villat, who commanded the area surrounding Le Cap. Villat shared Rigaud's view that the ex-slaves were unfit to rule, and it has been suggested that he conspired with Rigaud and the Southerners to overthrow Governor General Laveau, who was seen as being too amenable to the interests of the ex-slaves. Villat also did not personally trust Toussaint. Villat, unlike Toussaint, had never taken up arms against the Republic, and the two had actually fought against one another on the battlefield before Toussaint's defection. Since the devastation of Le Cap in 1793, the city had been largely repopulated by free men of color, who resented Governor General Laveau for the same reasons as Rigaud and Villat. Gradually, a conspiracy was being hatched. Villat ensured that he had the support of the citizenry of Le Cap, as well as the municipal authorities and the town's garrison. Toussaint, from his headquarters in the field, had been keeping an eye on the situation developing in Le Cap. Realistically, he could have moved to put an end to the conspiracy before it had the opportunity to develop further, but he merely stood back and watched. He had other plans in mind. On the morning of March 20th, 1796, Laveau was taking tea at his house in Le Cap, when suddenly a group of free men of color burst into his room. At first he thought that they had come before him to hash out some sort of legal dispute, but as soon as he rose to greet them, he was beaten down. One of his aides-de-camp rushed to his aid, but he too was beaten. The group of men arrested them both and dragged them through the streets of Le Cap to the prison, where, Laveau found, much to his surprise, his financial minister was already being detained. 
municipal authorities, while privately reassuring Laveau and company that this all must have been some horrible mistake and that they would surely be released soon, publicly declared that Governor General Laveau had lost the confidence of the people, and declared Vallat as the governor of all Saint-Domingue. Toussaint was informed of the ongoing coup in Le Cap by another officer, Pierre Michel, who commanded a battalion at a nearby fort. Toussaint immediately wrote to his dear friend Laveau, quote, What? They have the audacity to threaten you? To take up arms against you? What are they aiming at? They will all go back to their duty, or I shall take a thousand lives for just one. End quote. Toussaint issued a declaration to the seditious citizenry of Le Cap, chastising them for their actions. Quote, you asked for liberty and equality, and France gave it to you. What will the mother country say when she learns of your treasonous actions? She would treat us all as barbarians. You must blindly obey the laws, and those nominated to execute them. End quote. Toussaint rallied all the generals under his command to immediately march on Le Cap and free Laveau. At the head of this column was a division led by the dreaded Jean-Jacques Dessalines. By the time Toussaint himself arrived in Le Cap, escorted by his elite bodyguards, the coup plotters had lost heart. They released Laveau and the rest of the officials they had imprisoned after only two days. However, they still had one trick up their sleeves. Before fleeing into the countryside, Villat and his followers began to circulate a rumor through the city that two ships that had recently arrived at port were actually carrying chains, and that Laveau was secretly plotting to lead them back into slavery. An angry mob surrounded Laveau's house, and likely would have lynched him had it not been for the timely intervention of Toussaint. He calmed the crowd and led them to the storehouses to reveal that they were, in fact, no chains to be found, and that these rumors were entirely unfounded. On the 1st of April, Laveau called for a general assembly on the parade ground of Le Cap. To the surprise and elation of nearly everyone in attendance, Laveau declared Toussaint Louverture as adjunct to the governor, and he vowed to never take any action without first consulting him. He lavished high praises on Toussaint, proclaiming him as the savior of the Republic, the Black Spartacus, and the hero prophesied by the Abbé Renal, who is destined to avenge all the outrages committed against his race. Undoubtedly, Toussaint Louverture had emerged as the victor of the Villette Affair. Not only had he managed to defeat a competitor for power in the North in the person of Jean Vallette, but his rescue of Laveau permanently indebted the governor-general to him. Toussaint's unofficial role as Laveau's right-hand man had now been made official. What's more, Toussaint saw maintaining the power of Laveau in the metropolitan government as essential factors in maintaining abolition and emancipation, and he had successfully defended both against the threat posed by the free people of color, who were increasingly beginning to chart a course independent of the metropole, or, in some cases, closer to Britain. News of the Vallade affair was quite worrying to the officials back in metropolitan France. Whereas they once believed in the free people of color as the only force that could maintain order in Saint-Domingue, they now saw their growing ambition as a threat to their control over the colony. They soon dispatched a new commission to Saint-Domingue, this one consisting of five men, two of whom, Giraud and Leblanc, were non-entities. One of these commissioners was named Julien Raymond. He was a free man of color who had been agitating for the rights of people in Paris since the very beginning. There was also a man named Rome, and the emancipator himself, Laguerre Felicité Santhanax. Santhanax had since been acquitted of all the charges brought against him by the Massaillac Club. The French government knew that Santhanax was an ally of the ex-slaves, who they now believed were their only hope of keeping the ambitions of the free people of color in check. 
Santanax was given very explicit instructions to do this. The new commission from France arrived in Saint-Domingue on May 11, 1796. They came only with 1,200 soldiers, but they also came bearing much-needed weapons and ammunition. Santanax was greeted upon his arrival as a returning hero. People lined the streets of Le Cap and cheered for the great emancipator. Suffice it to say that Santanax had remained very popular among the people of Saint-Domingue. From the very beginning, Santanax pursued an unabashedly pro-black agenda. He saw this as finishing the work that he had begun in 1793, quote, He loved the blacks, said he wished he was a black man, and lived openly with a mulatto woman, end quote. He outlawed the use of racial slurs, abolished debt peonage, and forbade the use of corporal punishment on plantations. He established a number of schools in the cap, where former slaves of all ages were given the education that they had been denied under slavery. He had some of the brightest children sent to France to receive an education there. Among these students were two of Toussaint's own sons. Santanax was very concerned with the implications of the Vallade affair. He had Vallade arrested and deported to stand trial in France, but that would not be enough. He was convinced that the free people of color in the South had instigated the conspiracy somehow. He sought to simultaneously investigate the role of André Rigaud and company in the Vallade affair, and to bring the South back under his control. To these ends, he dispatched a three-man delegation to the southern province. As historian Caroline Fick writes, Santanax could not have chosen three men more ill-suited to the task ahead of them. One of the commissioners, Ray, was an avowed enemy of the free people of color in general, and André Rigaud in particular. Another, Laborde, was an infamous swindler and ne'er-do-well. As for the last man, Curverso, he was just generally incompetent. Rigaud's regime in the South was characterized by mulatto supremacy. Rigaud ensured that both his white and black subjects were marginalized and disenfranchised. Although Rigaud had embraced abolition and emancipation outwardly, in practice, he kept black plantation workers in conditions far worse than their northern counterparts. A number of black soldiers, ex-slaves, maroons alike, served in Rigaud's army, but he did not allow a single one to become an officer of any notable rank. And yet, it cannot be said that Rigaud was not one of the most steadfast defenders of the Republic in Saint-Domingue. He fought fiercely against the British from the very beginning, and he, unlike Toussaint, had anyone collaborating with the British shot without trial. To undermine Rigaud's domination in the South, Santanax's delegates sought to create intrigue among the black plantation workers and soldiers in the South. They visited plantations and subtly reminded the workers that, although they were technically free, and that they did not have to suffer such oppression from the free men of color. Whenever they encountered black soldiers, they reminded them that they were being denied opportunities for advancement by Rigaud and his supporters. Wherever the delegates went, unrest among black laborers and soldiers followed. Rigaud was suspicious of the delegates' true intentions, but nevertheless welcomed them to his capital of Le Quay. They presented their orders from Santanax to Rigaud. Among other things, racial equality was to be implemented in the army. But if these things did not provoke a hostile reaction among the free people of color, the unscrupulous behavior of the delegates was sure to. Ray seduced Rigaud's fiancée, Marie Villeneuve, and invited Rigaud to visit him, telling him that he was about to introduce him to the most beautiful woman in all of the city. Ray then pulled back the bed curtain to reveal Rigaud's fiancée. Rigaud erupted into a rage and nearly threw Ray from a balcony before cooler heads prevailed and saved the provocateur. The delegates then relayed orders from Santanax that Rigaud was to undertake an 
expedition against British positions at Grand Anse. The expedition ended in a spectacular failure. The delegates, of course, laid the blame on one of Virgo's officers, a man named Lafranc, and had him arrested. But as they were dragging him off to prison, he was rescued by a group of his men. Lafranc and his men then sought out Virgo's brother, Augustin, and told him that there was a conspiracy against the free people of color. Augustin gave the call to arms and raised the standard of revolt against the French Republic. In the countryside, the free people of color mobilized black laborers to join their nascent rebellion, telling them that Santhanax's delegates had really been sent to reinstate slavery. The free people of color, along with some 3,000 armed plantation laborers, then engaged in a pogrom against the white inhabitants of the South, whom they accused of supporting the delegates, and thereby supporting the reinstatement of slavery. Once again, cooler heads attempted to put an end to this massacre, but it was no use. The rebels insisted that they would only stop if ordered to do so by Rigaud himself. But at the time, Rigaud was encamped far from the action, and by the time he received word of what was going on, nearly 300 people, mainly whites but some blacks as well, had been slaughtered, their property stolen or burned. Rigaud simply refused to step in and restore order. He merely sat back and remarked, quote, how terrible is the rage of the people, end quote. Ray had been forced to flee into Spanish Santo Domingo, but the other two delegates remained. They pleaded with Rigaud to do something, and, with no options left, they authorized Rigaud to take whatever measures he deemed necessary to put an end to the violence. Rigaud then proclaimed that he was officially taking control of the government of the South, and would remain in control until contradictory orders came from Paris itself. Rigaud's position as ruler of southern Saint-Domingue had been reaffirmed. Meanwhile, in the north, the commission sent by France, in addition to bringing much-needed arms for Toussaint's army, also brought along with them news of France's new constitution. Per the Constitution of 1796, France's colonies were to be considered just as integral to the French nation as the various departments of the metropole. Saint-Domingue was allotted seven representatives in France's new legislative body, the Council of the 500. Those who were already in France representing Saint-Domingue, including Jean-Baptiste Belly, were re-elected easily. Two open offices remained. Ultimately, these roles would be filled by two of the most popular men in the colony, Etienne Laveau and Laguerre Félicité Santhanax. In August 1796, Toussaint wrote to his dear friend Laveau, suggesting that he might be elected to serve as representative for Saint-Domingue in France. Toussaint reminded Laveau that he had worked hard and sacrificed much in the course of his governorship of Saint-Domingue. He suggested that Laveau could return to his homeland, his wife, and children, and, once he was there, he could fight on behalf of the interests of the former slaves of Saint-Domingue against a French government that was growing increasingly conservative by the day. Laveau was indeed quite fatigued from nearly four years of constant warfare and intrigue, and leapt at this opportunity. Toussaint ensured the outcome of the election was in Laveau's favor. Some interpret Toussaint's support of Laveau's candidacy for representative as a cynical ploy to get rid of the most powerful man in the colony, so he could consolidate his own power. But, for Laveau's part, he seems to have never suspected Toussaint of conspiring against him. He never once said a bad word against Toussaint. The two remained very close friends even after Laveau's return to France, and kept up their rather flowery correspondence. Laveau became Toussaint's most ardent defenders in the halls of power in France. The election of Santanax, on the other hand, resulted in a great deal of political intrigue. Santanax, like Laveau, was more than happy to return to France and defend the emancipation there. But he was under immense pressure, both from the public and from the government, to stay in Saint-Domingue. 
Even Toussaint, at least at first, pleaded with Santhanax to say. So, Santhanax agreed to remain in Saint-Domingue until his term as commissioner expired sometime in the spring of the following year. In the meantime, however, he and Toussaint began to butt heads. As the two most powerful people in the colony with the departure of Laveau, they were bound to enter into conflict with one another eventually. At first glance, it would seem that the two men's goals were aligned. Both sought to defend abolition and emancipation, bring equality to the colony, restart the plantation economy, and defeat the British. However, both men had differing visions as to what the future of Saint-Domingue should look like. Toussaint, at least for the time being, remained entirely dedicated to the French Republic, both heart and soul. But, Santhanax had seen the way the wind was blowing in France, and it was blowing decidedly in the direction of conservatism and reaction. The radical left-wing Jacobins, led by Maximilien Robespierre, had been overthrown in June of 1794, leading directly into the period known as the Thermidorian Reaction. The government which took power after the Jacobins, known as the Directory, was decidedly more conservative than its predecessor. What was most concerning for Santanax was that fact that a number of former Saint-Domingue plantation owners had been elected to the Council of 500 and were openly agitating against what they called the excesses of emancipation. Santanax might have reasonably feared that this metropolitan government would make some attempt to reinstitute slavery. He had come to believe that the best way to preserve liberty, equality, and fraternity in Saint-Domingue was to cut all ties with France and declare the island independent. Toussaint was not at all convinced of this. He did not believe that the French Republic, which had granted them their freedom, could so easily turn its back on its word. In a conversation with Santanax, Toussaint claimed that the very notion of turning against France filled his heart with such remorse that he would die of sadness. Quote, How do you expect me, a black leader who has been favored by France, who has children being raised by the Republic, who was named Brigadier General by the Directory and confirmed in it, how do you expect me to betray my government? End quote. Toussaint and Santanax also had differing opinions when it came to race. Toussaint, principled as he was, was a true believer in racial equality. He accepted men of all colors, black, white, and everything in between, in the ranks of his army. He made a concerted effort to treat everyone he came across fairly, regardless of their race. This might explain his extremely tolerant policy towards the plantation owners in the formerly occupied British areas. When the Vallad affair kicked off, and others were quick to place the blame on the free people of color as a whole, Toussaint refused to do so, claiming that there existed bad men of all races. Toussaint was truly committed to reforming Saint-Domingue into a harmonious, diverse, and multiracial society, where whites and blacks could get along with one another. Santanax, on the other hand, had taken his professed love of the blacks to such an extreme that he had come to either distrust or outright loathe anyone who wasn't black. He distrusted the free people of color on account of the Vallad affair and André Vergo's opposition to his authority, the whites he hated for the indignities that they had foisted upon the blacks over the years, and he distrusted them because he saw them as potential British allies. Toussaint would later accuse Santanax of plotting to massacre the whites as part of his plan to make Saint-Domingue independent. Historians are divided as to whether or not Santanax actually proposed these things to Toussaint, or if Toussaint, looking to secure more power for himself and get Santanax out of the picture, fabricated such claims to discredit him. Whatever the case, Santanax had to go. Toussaint drew up a letter proposing that Santanax return to France at once to take his seat in the Council of 500. The letter was quite charitable to Santanax. It contained none of the aforementioned accusations and praised Santanax as a vehement defender of the blacks and whatnot. 
but underneath these niceties was an underlying threat. The letter was signed not only by Toussaint, but by also most of his top generals. The implication was clear. Santanax would leave Saint-Domingue within the next three days, or he would be kicked off the island by force. Santanax received this message loud and clear. He tried to play for a bit more time, but it was no use. On August 27, 1797, Santanax, accompanied by his mistress, a few loyal followers, and several armed guards sent by Toussaint, boarded a ship in the harbor of Le Cap, sailing off to France, never to return. And that is where we will leave the narrative for the time being. With the skillful elimination of both Governor Laveau and Commissioner Santanax, Toussaint Louverture had become the most powerful political and military force in Saint-Domingue, without having to spill a drop of blood. But his tribulations were not over yet. In order to realize his dream of a harmonious and prosperous multiracial Saint-Domingue, he still would have to contend with the British, who occupied a decent portion of the western half of the colony, as well as André Rigaud's rival regime in the south, and the growing forces of reaction in metropolitan France. Would Toussaint overcome these challenges? You'll have to tune in again in two weeks to find out. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, etc., you can address them to me via my email, historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact me via Twitter or Facebook, links to which can be found in this episode's description. Until two weeks from now, this has been the Historia Dramatica Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. I'm your host, Milam Connor, signing off.